KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Okay, when you think of Africa on film, what comes to mind? Out of Africa? Cry Freedom? Blood Diamond? You lost both your parents. That's a, that's a polite way of putting it now. Mom was raped and shot and... Um, Dad was decapitated and hung from a hook in the barn. I was nine. Boo-hoo, right? Sometimes I wonder... God ever forgive us for what we've done to each other? No matter how well-intentioned or well-crafted, those films all gave us white central characters in stories about Africa. There's nothing particularly wrong with that, except that it seems to be the only way that Hollywood can tell a story about Africa. Even Cry Freedom, the story of Stephen Biko, seemed to spend more time on the perils a white journalist went through than on Biko's life. Donald Woods, white, a liberal, editor of an influential newspaper. He had the courage to call Biko his friend. You are forbidden to write anything, whether privately or for publication. Or perhaps the film that comes to mind is The Gods Must Be Crazy. Humans avoid the deep Kalahari like the plague because man must have water to live. So the beautiful landscapes are devoid of people, except for the little people of the Kalahari. Pretty, dainty, small and graceful, the Bushmen. All this makes Bettina Nueno a little crazy. She's the daughter of a Kenyan father and a French mother. She's an associate professor in cultural anthropology at UC Davis and splits her time between California and Kenya. Now she wants to make a movie about music, dance, and trains in Kenya. She says most films made outside of Africa about the continent, and especially those made by Hollywood, fall prey to certain stereotypes and tropes. So in addition to giving us white lead characters, many films present the African characters as noble savages or the facade through which others find their humanity. When films move to an urban African setting, they tend to focus on disaffected, violent youth, as with Sotsi, a film made in South Africa but which Hollywood picked up and distributed. She told me she couldn't remember any Hollywood films that told stories of urban Africans leading a normal life and that the only urban African films she could find were anti-apartheid movies of the 1980s and 90s, like A Dry White Season, A World Apart, and Catch a Fire. I have to confess, I've known Bettina for decades because my grandparents and her grandparents were close friends. And she comes from a long line of people who are doers and not just talkers. So the fact that she was not seeing the Africa she knew being depicted in mainstream films led her to not just complain about it, but to actually do something. So she wrote her first screenplay called Last Dance in Kalolenny, and she made a short film to help generate some buzz in the feature-length film and just launched a Kickstarter to help raise funds. 
She describes her film as bringing to life Kenya's political, social, and musical transformations in a dramatic romantic story of a love triangle and dance competitions. Oh yeah, and there's trains. Because part of the inspiration came from the fact that in movies such as Out of Africa, The Constant Gardener, and Nowhere in Africa, trains figured prominently in key scenes. And that began to make her wonder why. I spoke with Bettina while she was at UC Davis, and she gave me some of the music that served as key inspiration to her. So I'll be playing some of that music during the interview. I know Bettina is a first-time filmmaker, and her feature is not even done yet. But she's a delightful, intelligent, passionate person, and she'll make you see Africa in a new light. I began the interview by asking her to describe a little of her amazing multicultural background. So, interestingly enough, the you know my, my grandparents on my mother's side... And a lot of in influence for, for this film project that we're working on comes from my grandparents from my father's side. So uh, my mother, who you know, Fleur, went to Kenya in the uh, nine, uh, early 60s, met my dad, got married, and stayed there, and has lived there for almost the rest of her life. And um, we were born in Nairobi, and my father's father, my father was also born in Nairobi, and his father moved to Nairobi as um, as a young man to work with the railways. So I often uh, describe myself as a child of the railways because we also grew up in a in a house very near to railway lines. So I always heard the train passing in Nairobi, and much of what became of my father's family was was shaped by the decision of my grandfather who was then a young man in Western Kenya who came to Nairobi in the 1930s to work as a train driver. And that move uh, shaped the trajectory of the whole family, both from being quite poor to people who became middle class, from rural to urban. And I think also then to this particular affinity and association with Nairobi as a city. It also afforded my aunts and uncles an education, and uh, almost all of all of them, seven out of eight, went to university, which was quite amazing at that time. It afforded us then the grandchildren an education. And I remember as a child, we used to go with the railway, the train between Nairobi and Mombasa, almost every holiday to go down to the coast and then back up from the coast because it's an elevation difference of 5,000 feet and a long overnight journey, and we'd go by train each time. And so, and we'd always run into some relatives who were still working on the railways. So I often think of the railway as, as uh, part of my childhood, and um, this project kind of grew out of that beginning. And your father and mother were also involved in uh, journalism. I remember as a kid getting their rainbow newspaper that came from Kenya, and I know that there was also, I, I believe there was also one for adults as well. Yes, yeah, so um, my, 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 neither of them studied journalism, neither of my parents studied journalism, and they both studied in the, the U.S., but actually met in Kenya. But my, my dad at that time was a budding journalist, and he uh, started his own news magazine, somewhat similar to at the time, a weekly news magazine, something similar to Time or Newsweek, but in Kenya. And it covered stories in Kenya, regionally Africa, and then a few stories of the world pertinent to that issue. And he ran that for about uh, 23 years. I think it's 23. I'm not sure of the exact amount of years. 
as, and it became a really major news and analytical paper for Kenya. My mom then later started this Rainbow Magazine, which was a children's magazine that had everything from natural history to cartoons. And so they both worked in journalism most of their lives. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned that your parents weren't actually trained as journalists, but kind of moved into that. And you are about to make a film, but your background (laughs) is very different from that. So I I believe you have a background in agriculture and anthropology. You're a, a professor at UC Davis. So how did all this interest in filmmaking suddenly come about? Yeah, that's so true. So I have my undergraduate degree here from UC Davis as well in ag science and management. And and then I studied anthropology at Stanford and Hopkins afterwards. And I've always been interested in property and citizenship. And uh, I have a book on citizenship and land issues that is about Latin America. But this particular project, funnily enough, came up like about 20 years ago when I was doing field work, and I was doing field work on uh, the inheritance of land in Kenya for my master's degree, which I got at Stanford, people were playing a music that was just beautiful, that I loved. And I was telling my dad about it, and he said, oh, it reminds him of a music of his childhood, and that people used to come to Nairobi to stay in their house because they were in railway housing, and it was right in the middle of town. Um, and they would come and stay over. The people would come and stay with them in order to participate in music and dance competitions. And so some 20 years ago, I thought, ooh, that'd be a nice film, but then did nothing about it. (laughs) And I did all this different anthropological work, and I ran into Njane Mugambi, who's the person who I'm working with on this film project, and he's a musician and has worked in all sorts of different ways in Kenya in in music. He's a classical composer and has also studied um, Kenyan music, uh, popular music. And he, well, I was just telling him a story about the music because we were talking about music to him, and he kind of fell in love with the idea of the story. He said, oh, if you ever make it into a film tell me about it. I want to be part of the project. And really strangely, a year later, he sent me a text message that said, oh, I've written a symphony that's about the uh, 50 years of independence. It's for the 50-year celebration of Kenya's independence, and it's about the building of the railways. And so maybe you need it for the film you're going to make. (laughs) And then I thought, oh, yes, I am going to make a film. And that's how the project began. So the name of this proposed film is going to be Last Dance in Kaloleni. So tell me a little bit about the story that you are interested in telling with this. Okay, so the story that we're interested in telling about in Last Dance in Kaloleni is a story of Nairobi itself, the city itself. And it's set just before independence in Kenya. So it's set in 1959, and independence is 63. And it's about the moment where everything is in, up, up, in upheaval. Uh, it's unsure where everything is going. And how do you make decisions? And how do you uh, participate in, in, in much greater things that are happening around you? So part of what we, what we were thinking in um, developing that uh, story, because it's it's also a story of music and dance and how those are related to politics. 
But in, in a sense, he wanted the audience to take away something about ordinary people who build the world that we live in today and how new future worlds can be built by making difficult choices and deciding to, do, to go in certain directions. And then also about the close connection between dance and music and politics. And finally, we wanted to be able to show the sort of sounds, feelings, tastes, heat, tensions, hopes, dreams of that 1959 Nairobi, which was a moment, perhaps a really great possibility, but also of uncertainty because a new country was coming, but no one knew when or how or what it would be. I have a lot of friends, or I know a lot of people, who have announced themselves as filmmakers and have taken quite a while to actually make something. You are this professor, and you think about making a film, and you like got down to doing stuff almost immediately after mentioning to me that you had this idea for a script. So you started by making a short film that just debuted in March. So how did this short film come about, and what does that kind of uh, encapsulate that gives people a sense of what the movie's going to be? The idea for the longer film, let's say, started 20 years ago, and then it sat and on the shelf, and then it, it sort of took form when Anjani said, hey, I have a written symphony for you. And that was about four years ago, three years ago. It's three years ago. And we said, okay, we'll give ourselves four years, funnily enough, and we want to make a film. And, and then it really took a lot of background work because neither of us had ever done it before. What would it take? How to do it? What kind of a thing we wanted? And it took uh, about a lot of research. I interviewed a lot of people about the times and spaces of Nairobi in 1959 because there's very little written information. And I also wanted to get the particular historic moment correct, although it's not a it's not a documentary or anything. It's uh, set in a moment, but we wanted to get that correct, as well as the feeling of the time for people who lived there, uh, because Nairobi changes very fast, we wanted to get that correct. So we did all this research, and then we, I wrote a script, and the script was finished uh, almost a year ago, and was, I had sent, entered it into the Sundance Screen White Writers Workshop, because a friend suggested it. I had no idea. I just went ahead and did it. And... We heard in August of last year that we had gotten into the second round of that. And suddenly we thought, oh my goodness, we don't know anything about film. And there's no point going into, if, we, if by some miracle we get in, there's no point in going to a workshop uh, like a master class when you haven't even done the beginner's class. So <laughs> we said, let's try and do something that can test out the concept and see what we're also capable of and do a short. Um, we didn't have the money to do something like a trailer. We didn't have the money to do, you know, anything big. But what we did have was, one, the musical expertise and um, a concept. So we decided to do a music video and to try and encapsulate in that music video the combination of three lines of the bigger film, Last Dance in Kalanani. Last Dance in Kalanani is a story of a transformation of music and dance. 
It's a, it's a love story, and it's a story about politics. So we wanted these things in it, music and dance changing, uh, a love story, and a political story. And we tried to encapsulate that in one short song and in one short music video that just gave a flavor of the possibilities of the bigger film. Let's hear a little bit of the music from that short. Ladies and gentlemen, they tell us we're not allowed to hold political rallies. But is this a political rally? This is why I have come to dance. Ladies and gentlemen, they tell us we must wait. Now, the music that's in the short is actually something that was composed new. It's not a, an old piece of music from yeah. those times. So tell me about your decision to use that for the piece. Okay, so one of the interesting things is in the, the larger film, because it was a moving... Um, 1959 was an interesting musical moment in Kenya where there was beginning to develop a Nairobi sound a very particular music that was much more um, iconic of Nairobi as opposed to some other place. It came about in a number of ways. A lot of music from abroad was played on radio, but it tended to be somewhat censored by the colonial government as what could be heard on radio or not heard on radio. And there was a, a large amount of the music that was played was Caribbean music, from the English-speaking and Spanish-speaking Caribbean. Like many places else in the world, uh, Cuban son, cha-cha, rumba, mambo were played, and calypsos from the English-speaking Caribbean. And they were very, very influential in local music. So people took up the sounds and rhythms of son and calypso, and they also took up the, so the sound and rhythms of the twist, or more, more, more like rock and roll. But uh, much uh, music in the 50s, from the Americas, not much music was making it in the same way into um, the radio in Kenya, the radio that most people listen to. So the railway is an interesting place because radios were played 24-7 in the railway stations, and in 1959, there was this massive railway strike in 58 and 59. And in order to sort of uh, become more popular as a marketing tool, the railway started a, a new, a new uh, program that was called Railway Showboat. And it began to play local musicians who were playing basically Western instruments. They would have a band set up where the dominant sound was the guitar, as opposed to traditional instruments. And it usually looked like a, a setup, like a Latin band set up, horns, drums, string instruments. And a number of people who became sort of nationally famous grew out of those new space for hearing local 
music. This includes Fadili Williams and Dowdy Kabaka, who were playing at that time. And it also put a sort of a new interest in the, in the radio for, as opposed to regional musics of Kenya, a sort of national music that turned up with that, that radio program. So the music that we chose for this sh- a short video, The Time Is Now, was music that needed to make some of the transformation from the influences from outside, especially those uh, of Latin sounds, to a more Africanized sound. And so what we chose in this particular case was Cuban son. It starts off in a slow son and ends up much more in a sound that was similar to the Congolese rumbas of that time. So it's music that became sort of Cuban son with an African twist to it, and which is always interesting because, of course, the son had a twist from Africa, but an ancient one. But this is another one, retwisting it back to East Africa. It's done sort of in the process as the song goes along. It changes to bring in different sort of sounds and instruments. And the dominance of the guitar as the main instrument, which became how a lot of music of East Africa is played with the dominance of the guitar. The short film kind of gives you a condensed evolution (laughs) of Mm -hmm. that sound. Yes. You sent me some music to listen to, to kind of give a flavor for some of the music that could influence the film. I want to play the piece Malaika, uh-huh. which you said, tell me about what that song is and why you chose that as one of the ones to send me, because you said that has a, a kind of a distinct African flavor to it. Yeah, so the song Malaika is also perhaps Kenya's most famous song, and it's a song that there's been a lot of arguments over who owns the copyright to it. <laughs> And it was a song that really interestingly um, just became, it's become over generation after generation after generation that song is sung and resung and resung, and many people have heard of it. One of the people who sang it outside of Kenya was Miriam Makeba, and it, she first sang it when she came to Kenya's independence celebrations and sang it at independence with um, uh, other people who were uh, Kenyan artists who were singing it at that time. So Malaika is a, is a love story, and it's a song about a man who would, wants to get married, but he doesn't have enough money. And so Malaika means angel, so it's about my angel. What, am, what do I do? I don't have enough money to marry you. What can a poor young man like me do in these circumstances? And um, it sort of became a song about romance, about the conditions of Uh, class conditions, about how difficult things were in cities. Often many songs about the city are like that. The particular version I gave gave you is um, uh, uh, an English version with slightly different words than the original Swahili version. And it's sung by Fadili Williams and his sister Esther, who who were stunning musicians of this time. And Fadili in particular became very, very famous. Uh, and is still often listened to in Kenya. All right, let's hear a little bit of that song. Malaika, how I love you, my angel. Malaika, how can we stay apart? Ever since I met you, my heart has been a should break this heart, my 
plays a surprising role in a lot of cultures. Talk a little bit about how the pop music of that time in the the late 50s and early 60s helped influence the times or played a role in the politics or in the kind of social upheavals that were going on. So one of the things that is really interesting about these uh, music that came out and were played on the radio on this time and produced by uh, local Kenyan artists is a lot of them talk about the city. They talk about Nairobi. And they talk about the difficulties of living in a city at a certain time. So many of them are social commentaries, either the difficulties of not having money, of falling in love, of of being in a city that is hard to deal with and uh, issues of work and jobs, but also style. Like some of them talk about the importance of being dressed in a certain way in dark glasses and cigarettes (laughs) in those days, I guess. Often they were entertaining songs also for for dancers, but they talked a lot about social issues. We had a politician of the time called Tom Mboya, who was also a musician, and actually a number of the politicians played in bands, which was kind of a surprise for me. But he uh, also used music and the ability of music and dance to draw people into a crowd, for in, into a collection of people as a, as a way of doing politics. So we're very interested in Last Dance in Kalaleni to also explore that side of where the political meets the artistic. You mentioned that there was the influence of the twist yes. in some of the music, and you gave me Bachelor Boy Twist. So let's hear a little of that and then talk about it. Mimi ni bachelor boy, nita wa kutoka wapi, nasiku sasa zinapita, lo nireraena. Mimi ni bachelor boy, nita wa kutoka wapi, nasiku sasa zinapita, lo nireraena. Now, this song came out a little later than the first one you gave me. Tell me why you chose that as another one to pick. So the twist was really taken up by a lot of local musicians. And you'll hear it has a very sort of pared-down sound to it, uh, where the guitar is dominant. And um, But many of the, the songs that are coming in the form of a twist were really, again, a commentary on urban things. And Bachelor Boy Twist uh, talks about this issue of being a bachelor in the city in Nairobi. So one thing that uh, your audience might not know is that Nairobi was uh, probably at that time about 60% male or more because all these workers came into the city, but they weren't allowed to bring their families. And often their housing didn't permit uh, space for families. So you have this heavily, predominantly male city. So it's also a problem that that continues to be like an underlying theme in a lot of songs is this issue of love and competition in, in sort of uh, what does it mean to be a bachelor in a city like that. And your film is going to focus quite a bit on, in addition to the music, the dance element. 
And there's a competition in your film regarding dance. And tell me why that was important to include. Right from the beginning, I was interested in the sort of dance competitions because having talked to my dad about it, it was, he had mentioned it as, as a way that people sometimes, like it was like winning the lottery. You had a new chance in life when you won the competition. And I was really interested that people would come from different parts of um, different other cities to be in these competitions. In the story, the, the, the dance competition is essential because of this issue of what a prize could mean if you win it and, and the need for that. And also, I think the dance is symbolic of other things. It's symbolic of novelty and innovation as well as it can be a staying true to tradition and form, which is something that is really important in the discussions about independence and what shape a new country would take. But in addition, the the politician that I mentioned before, Tom Mboya, and he's very interesting for a number of reasons, one of which he was... He had organized a number of students to come to the United States um, just before independence. He saw independence coming and decided, you know, we need an educated government. And so as a young man in his 20s, he helped start to raise, from 1957 onwards, money to help Kenyans go to university in the States. And one of those people was a Nobel Prize laureate, Wangari Maathai, she was one of the people who went on his arrange. On the side, on the U.S. side, some of that money also came from donors like Kennedy and was helped in, uh, there was a committee of people on this side, mainly African-Americans who helped uh, organize the sort of fundraising to, to bring people to the United States. So this politician, Tom Mboya, he also played music and he loved to dance. And many people told me stories about him dancing. But um, at a certain point in time, because of different uh, organizing, all political uh, rallies were canceled in Nairobi. And he instead calls a dance and music rally, which he turns into a political rally. <laughs> and that made it to Time magazine. So that was kind of interesting. <laughs> what was it about telling this story that made you feel so strongly that you had to kind of leave your academic career, not behind, but like kind of push it aside for a little bit and t tackle this more creative artistic story and, and get it made. So there are a number of things. So at, at heart and soul, I guess I'm still a social scientist. And I was interested in the sort of missing space of this urban African in all kinds of sort of artistic representations. Uh, in most films on Africa, the urban African seems to be someone out of place. So either they're a disaffected, violent, angry man, usually, or, you know, victim woman, and they're never in place. The city is never theirs. And I thought this is something really strange in the way that we think cities in Africa. And it doesn't matter. You can almost any film that you see, that, that kind of works, and often even the ones made in, in, in Africa. So I was also interested in that sort of space of a kind of another tale about work and labor, colonialism and cities um, that, that, again, we don't, we don't tell very often in Kenya either. So 
I also was interested, finally, in instead of writing a social science book, are there other ways of saying the same things? Are there other ways of exploring, you know, what it meant to live in the city of that time? What was Nairobi? Are there other ways of, of seeing and hearing it? So um, I think for me, interestingly enough, it has also led me to write a, a, a academic work because of the amount of research that I did to to know the times for the film, I'm also doing a, a sort of parallel, a book on Nairobi that looks at some of the uh, product of, of, of 1959, how it's lived out today. Well, knowing your grandparents and how much they did, it's not surprising that you're like tackling so much. That's <laughs> <laughs> <time>. crazy. <laughs> but that seems to be a tradition in your family. I guess so. As you've been progressing through this, writing, making this short music video, what are you discovering about the filmmaking process? Is this something that you're enjoying, or is it is it daunting? Is it fun? You know, it's absolutely daunting, but it's tremendous fun. And what's interesting, what I'm really discovering is the most amazing people to work with. I've had so much luck and such talented people who have put things together so far with no budget whatsoever. So um, I think just to see what is possible has been really, really um, exceptional. I, it's, it's hard to even describe. And the amount of people who so generously donated their ideas, uh, suggestions, uh, knowledge, this is how you do this, this is how you do that, has been overwhelming. It's been just wonderful. And so it's, I, as, a, as a process, I think I've also been lucky. Everything has worked wonderfully well. <laughs> and, pe- and maybe it's the people we were lucky enough to find because it was an exciting set. It was an exciting process of filming. And really, people put in a lot of their own thoughts, ideas, energy uh, in order to get that product out. I think for a lot of Americans, the the idea of African cinema is a very foreign concept. And probably most Americans haven't seen a film actually from Africa. They've they you know they might have seen something like Cry Freedom or a film where a, an American studio or a British studio has made a film in Africa. But what is the film industry like in Kenya? Are there films coming out on a regular basis? Is it a thriving industry? Is it kind of subservient to, you know, cinema coming from outside? At the moment it's an uh, a growing industry. Um, There's more and more films made in Kenya. We're nothing like sort of Nigeria. Nigeria is the powerhouse of movies in Africa, Nigeria and Egypt, but Nigeria even surpassing all others, I think. And they make, uh, they started off in really low-budget films and making a huge number of them very cheaply and have sort of grown a very diverse industry out of that. And a lot of Nigerian films are watched across Africa, um, um, and they're, they're very popular in that sense and have now are sort of cultural icons. We, in Kenya, we tend to make really different sort of films. And recently, there have been an, uh, a few films that people were very excited about and hope would go much further than 
sort of boundaries of Kenya, and two of them, one of them is called Nairobi Half-Life, and the other one was called Something Necessary. Very, very different films dealing in the contemporary period about one about, you know, the struggles of being a migrant in a city and then coming to the city, and that's Nairobi Half-Life and all those difficulties. Again, in contemporary times, Something Necessary had to do with the last election violences and sort of healing after that. So, and then um, there have been a number of uh, projects on animation that have taken off. And I think uh, Nairobi film industry has, has a good set of people who had worked in animation in certain ways because they worked in a lot in developing games for cell phones and other things. So it's, it's an interesting where the sort of tech hub is in Kenya, which is in cell phone development, but then can be mobilized into other film-related things. But the industry in general in Kenya is very, very young and and just just sort of finding its feet at the moment. Why do you think we've gotten so few films from Africa in the United States? I mean, there there's a few filmmakers who've kind of made a bit of a dent, but we don't see them coming over the same way that French films came over or Italian or more recently Hong Kong. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I'm not 100% sure as why. It might be something about the stories or the marketing or the kind of money behind distribution that one would need to be to get into the U.S. the U.S. market, um, which I don't think exists to the same extent. I don't think most of the Nigerian film industry tried to. They were interested in much more local markets, and then they're now interested in the Nigerian diaspora or other African diaspora. So I think they went for a different kind of a market. Um, because they didn't rise out of the same sort of tradition of of, uh, filmmaking. But it has been very, very hard, I think, for perhaps budget reasons and maybe sometimes storylines, but I'm not really sure if it's that. Maybe it's also what people want to hear about Africa, although I'm not really sure what the answer to that question is, uh, because I don't think people have been given much options in what they hear about Africa. So I'm <laughs> not really sure what they want. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, as somebody who loves to see films from different cultures and different places, to me, films are like these ambassadors that help you to understand and kind of get a an entryway into another place. Oh, I, I think I had one friend who was trying to show some films from Africa here in San Diego, and one of his suggestions was is that kind of the just the narrative style has a different kind of sense of time and place that Americans just weren't kind of falling in sync with. And I don't know if that's something you've ever noticed. Yeah, so it, it can depend on where the film is made. There are a lot of films made out of French-speaking West Africa, whose narrative style would definitely have that issue. And they they tend much more to be art films in that sense. I would say some of the Nigerian movies have, you know, they're all plot and and that's it kind of thing. Um, And it's a a more familiar narrative style, but they're, they're budget movies and they don't pretend to be otherwise. So they might not appeal in terms of visually in the same way to an American audience. As someone who has spent a lot of time both in the United States and in Africa, does it frustrate you to see the way African cultures in Kenya and Nairobi are depicted in American films? Um, Yes. (laughs) 
Yeah, very much, actually. And it was one of the sort of pushes to think about in this film. So one of the frustrations was this idea that the urban African is out of place. But another sort of typical thing of, of outside movies on Africa is if they, don't, if they have non-African characters, all the African characters are sort of facades upon which the other characters find their humanity. And they themselves are either perfect or, ev- or evil, but then they never transform. They're never growing real humans either. So those were two things. Oh, and then the third thing was any film on Kenya, almost anyone from outside has trains in it, but it's always from like as a way to show landscape, the train passing through this gorgeous landscape. And um, it's never about what it takes to get a train on a track, the sort of hard work of train issues. So those were things that inspired some of the things we're looking at in this film. And in making this film... Because you are looking back at this period of time from the late 50s and early 60s, what kind of challenges are you going to face in terms of trying to create that historical period? Yeah, so that's quite a tough thing, especially for the cityscape. You know, Nairobi has changed phenomenally, and especially in the last 10 years. It's a a constant place of construction. What's interesting right now is the original railway housing still exists. And some of it looks pretty similar to the time. Some of it is a bit changed. The actual Nairobi railway station, you know, has its uh, the general facade and uh, layout is the same as in 1959. And for a number of uh, years in the sort of uh, 90s through to about 2010, uh, trains didn't really work in Kenya. So there, there are many things that never changed over that period. So there's some interesting ways in which certain certain spaces are the same. Certain spaces, uh, like the dance halls, also still exist. Some are in better or worse condition. It's, it would be very easy to recreate what they looked like at the time. I think the hardest part will be cityscapes. And it might be something to move to other cities that haven't changed that much, that might have that same feel and look of Nairobi of that time. Are you feeling any kind of pressure to get this done quickly because some of those things might yeah, change? Yeah, I'm feeling huge pressure. <laughs> and it's very funny. We called our first video, The Time Is Now. That, that sentence keeps running through my head all the time because a lot of those neighborhoods are scheduled for demolition because they're very old and they, the land is worth lots of money and they want to densify the center of the city and so uh, the whole city is changing, and it's also, we feel a pressure, not just because the actual structures will go, but once they're gone, how will anyone remember them? And I guess that's the other thing. We're seeing a new city arise, and no real knowledge of the history of the city that's been coming down, in a sense. So it's about trying to think about how to remember some of these spaces, even if they're going to be something else later and what the city might have been like. So what are your plans to get this film made? Are you planning any kind of uh, crowd fundraising? Yeah, so definitely we, we will have up a, a kick, um, Kickstarter campaign as a, as a crowd fundraising. We're also interested, I mean, we're trying everything, sort of the similar type of thing called Mchanga in, in East Africa. 
And we're also interested in sort of being in contact with uh, people who are interested in that time, whether they're uh, railway enthusiasts as well as music enthusiasts of the time, and perhaps even some of the people who are involved in the politics of the time who might be interested in this kind of a film to go forward. So we're kind of doing uh, three-pronged legs, <laughs> going uh, through crowdfunding, going through individuals who might have been interested in certain parts of it at the time, who might be interested in funding something like this. We already have a webpage for the film, which is called Last Dance in Kalaleni. So if you look up Last Dance in Kalaleni, the movie. And we're going to start a, a, a Kickstarter from that. So it's kind of, uh, and any other traditional sort of in, investors <laughs> that we can find or get hold of. Does the government have any interest in, in trying to see this film get made in the sense of capturing a moment in history that was significant? Um, so far, they haven't uh, expressed any interest. But interestingly enough, I sh was showing the short film to a tour guide, and they said instantly, oh, you know, can I use this to show my clients? And I think some of the areas of interest to us to pursue more would be the tourism board, as well as um, uh, the sort of Nairobi city, as a, as a city. I, I know that the railways themselves have no money, <laughs> but they might be interested. You know, we have a new railway being built in Kenya. It will be finished next year. So again, it's, it's just a moment of interesting things happening around railways in Kenya as well. And are the railways being cooperative in terms of if you need to go shoot there, do they seem to be willing to help you out? They used to be, but the problem is we've had a number of terrorist attacks in Kenya. And recently there was a ban on filming in crowded public places like bus stops, airports, uh, railway stations, etc. So one of the things that we did with the short was to invite the, the station master and the different ministries. So at least they, they are aware of us. And that will be one of the things we're very interested in, being able to try and get those permissions as a, as a form of support for the, for the film. So do you have a timeline set in, in your head at all as to when you'd like to actually start shooting or have the film completed? We, have a, we had a dream timeline, which was four years, which will be up next year, somewhere in the middle of next year. We also have a dream timeline of those four years for a number of reasons. One of them was that there'll be elections in Kenya uh, next year. And we wanted to be done before that, because things always slow down before elections. And also, it's an interesting historical piece. It would be interesting to think about during elections. The other reason that's interesting to us is that one of the, the name of the main area of Nairobi, Kaloleni, where one of the dance competitions is held, was um, actually a home to Barack Obama, the president's father. Um, he lived there. He was, a, he was a great dancer. And it's interesting to us that particular connection uh, in the moment while uh, President Obama is still president. 
So that to us is just as another side interest. But when we had originally given us four years, it was about thinking of that as well. You also gave me a couple more pieces of music that I want to try and fit in here because the music is fabulous. So one is by an artist named Franco, who you said was a Congolese musician. And what was his, what, what song did you pick from him? So I, I picked the song uh, Josephine. Uh, Nairobi, eh? Josephine, Nasina Baye, Wobateko, Nalingine, Tosongana, Wobateko. It's a song that is, is again, picking, uh, has picked up a certain Cuban sound and made them really Congolese. And Franco was perhaps one of the most famous Congolese artists uh, in that sort of what became known as Congolese rumba. That song really plays with the relationship between the guitar and the saxophone. But in the middle of it, it has sort of an instrumental break that it was very typical of Congolese music, and it's called a seben. It's a place that was just for dancing. It was a place where you change the style of dance that you do. You know, you have a singer, you listen to all this music, it's the dominance of the voice, and suddenly it's the dominance of the instruments. And... We are particularly interested in that moment of the seven as a place for innovation, of doing your own steps, of having fun, and, and really signaling a very African twist on Latin sounds. And so I think that particular song is just beautifully done in many ways. It's a lovely example of Franco's music and also gives a very nice, clear seven that, that people might be able to hear the changes um, going through the music. And the seven is important to the story uh, in, in the bigger film. All right, let's hear a little bit of Franco's song. What did music mean to you growing up? What do you remember specifically that had an influence on you? So, you know, it's very funny. I've been thinking about it uh, a bit because I realized I had all these musical instruments in our house. I'm not sure I ever played them well. (laughs) I took lessons here and there, but I never really played them well. But music, there were two things my parents always spent money on, even when they had very little, and it was music and food. And music really was the things my father loved. My mom loved. They didn't love the same music. It was different. But it was, we had a piano in our house. My dad's the best musician in our family, but the rest of us tried, and then my sister, I would say. And so it was something that was always around in, in our house growing up. And I think I, after going to college, I fell in love with it even more. And I came to the United States for college, and it just it opened up to a whole bunch of new, new music. And I would say my favorite music is the sort of wide African diaspora music, meaning music from Africa, from most of Latin America, uh, from parts of Asia, from Hawaii. I mean, there are all sorts of music that I adore. And I also did fieldwork in Latin America and Colombia, so I'm very much attached to those Latin American sounds. 
Uh, I guess I was never a musician, but I am a dancer. So I dance flamenco, which is a sort of an odd <laughs> offshoot of other things, but and have done performances also in regional Latin American dances. So, um, but flamenco became my great interest because of its changing rhythms and its improvisational styles. And so these are some of the things that we're also working with in this film. One last piece of music is Western Shiloh, which you say shows the Africanization of Western instruments. In the late 1950s, early 60s, people are picking up all these sounds, so calypsos and son and rumba and cha-cha-cha and twist. And I think Western Shiloh, of all of the songs, Africanizes it the most, moves the most off a lot of songs. So some of them are very obviously, to anybody else's ears, the twist. But that song is really complicated, and there are bits and pieces of it that are hard to place. And I think it, it's a really, and it has many layers to the music. And so, to me, Western Shiloh is, is um, so, it's evocative of where music was going. So it has, it has bits and pieces of influence from other places, but they're not that recognizable anymore. And it's a song that has remained popular, again, over much time. And it's quite different from much of the other work Dowdy Kabaka did. So it's a, it's a kind of a unique song, but one that has remained incredibly popular. So people put out albums of old music, and it, it always turns up in those. <laughs> I want to thank you, Bettina, for taking some time to talk to me about your film, and I hope we can check in in the near future to find out on its progress. Oh, I hope so, too, very much. I look forward to it. Thank you very much, Beth. It's been a real pleasure. That was Bettina Nueno, who's planning to make a film called Last Dance to Calo Lenny and has a Kickstarter going right now. Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Coming up soon will be a discussion about the curse of the Scottish play with some recommendations on which film adaptations of Macbeth are the best to see. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review or comments. You can also follow me on Twitter at Cinebeth and like the Cinema Junkie Facebook page. Online archives are available at kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.